Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 150 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is journalist Malcolm Gladwell, best-selling author of such books as Blink, The Tipping Point, and Outliers. And we'll be speaking with him today about what geeks and nerds can learn from his most recent book, David and Goliath, Misfits, Underdogs, and the Art of Battling Giants. And now, here's our interview with Malcolm Gladwell. All right, so we're here with Malcolm Gladwell. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be on it. Okay, and so your latest book is called David and Goliath, and it's out now in paperback. So just tell us a bit about the book. It's a book about uh, underdogs and the nature of advantage. And I sort of try to figure out when are advantages advantageous and when are they not? You know, when when is a little adversity a good thing? Uh, and also I'm interested in any kind of asymmetrical conflict. When a big guy takes on a little guy, um, how does that change the nature of the conflict? What are the strategies available to the little guy? It's all those kinds of questions which lead in all sorts of unexpected directions. Yeah, yeah. And, and so as the title suggests, you start off the book by talking about the biblical story of David and Goliath. And you have a different take on that story than most people. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, it's a fun story. It turns out, you know, there's an enormous amount of literature about that um, battle. And the first thing that uh, so all kinds of, everyone from neurologists to military historians have examined it. And the first thing that the literature says is that um, we, David's weapon, the sling, is not a child's toy. It's not a, it's not a slingshot, as it's sometimes erroneously described. Um, it's a sling, which is a crucial part of any army in that era was, were slingers who are essentially a form of artillery. And you can, uh, a rock leaving a sling in the, uh, that's controlled by an expert marksman has the stopping power of a handgun. I mean, it's an incredibly lethal weapon. In fact, things would be used against armed infantry all the time. So David's not going up against Goliath with some kind of random uh, weapon. He's going up against Goliath with a very, very sophisticated deadly weapon that you use against people like Goliath, right? So that's the first thing. David has deliberately chosen a weapon that puts him, gives him a technological advantage. Um, and the other thing is that is that all this fascinating stuff that neurologists have said about Goliath, that there's all this speculation that uh, he's a giant, and many giants, not all of them, are people who are giants because they suffer from a pituitary disorder called acromegaly, which is overproduction of human growth hormone, which makes you very big, but which often comes with a side, series of side effects, among them uh, problems with vision. And if you read the story of David and Goliath with that in mind, it sounds an awful lot like Goliath is suffering from this condition, acromegaly, and it's got a vision problem. He can't see David, um, which is this lovely metaphor for the nature of giants in our society, that very often the thing that makes them big also renders them blind. Um, and also, it's an argument for examining battles between David and Goliath more closely, because what appears to be at first, this tremendous mismatch is in fact a battle between a blind giant 
up against someone with superior technology who's changed the rules and hasn't told them. <laughs> That's a very different kind of battle, right? Right. Now, so this interpretation, is this among people who've really studied this seriously, is this more widely accepted or is this still something of a kind of outlier uh, explanation? I mean, it's, we're dealing with a story from thousands of years ago for which we have no um, other evidence, you know, other, no other evidence other than the biblical accounts. So there's always going to be controversy. Although I was surprised, for example, the bit about Goliath possibly suffering from a pituitary disorder, I was surprised at the depth of support for that hypothesis in the medical literature. Lots and lots of people have come to the same conclusion on that. The stuff about slinging is incontrovertible. No one would argue, no one who knows anything about um, ancient warfare would dispute the fact that David had an incredibly deadly and powerful weapon in his hands. Um, so there's, it's, uh, you know, I don't think this is a, I, I think it's a fascinating explanation. It's not a terribly controversial or speculative one. Hmm. Uh, okay, and so one reason in particular I wanted to talk to you about this book is because this is a show for geeks, and I think a lot of geeks have felt like misfits and underdogs at some point in their lives. And so do you think this is a book that, that geeks and nerds will, will take comfort in? Will they uh, be encouraged by this book? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of this is in, you know, for example, I have a whole chapter on do you want to be a little fish in a big pond or a big fish in a little pond? So it's, do you prize prestige over freedom? That's really the question. And, you know, everyone faces that choice when they decide where to go to college, for example. You go to a small, less competitive college, you can succeed at almost anything and do whatever you want. You can, you know, you go to a small enough college, you can play basketball, even if you're five foot two, right? Um, you go to Harvard, you really can't take physics unless you're a really good physicist, right? You're just going to get swamped. And so here's this question. Do you, how do you make that decision? Do you, which, which do you value more? The prestige of the degree of the, the name of the school or the freedom that comes from going somewhere that's a little less prestigious. And I make the argument for the latter that we should always privilege freedom. Um, and that's the unexpected advantage of taking a less um, celebrated and advantageous route. And I sort of have always thought that's the, that is the geek's manifesto. The geek gives up acclaim and prestige and uh, all, all kinds of social benefits in exchange for doing whatever the geek wants to do, for the freedom to pursue whatever you, wherever your, whatever course your imagination takes you. And I, this book is wholeheartedly embraces that choice and says that we don't, too few people make that choice. We're way too hung up on social benefits and, um, prestige and such and not nearly concerned enough about, um, having the freedom to pursue what interests us. Well, yeah, I mean, just from listening to you talk, it seems like you've spent less time attending class than pretty much anyone I know. I, in fact, did not graduate from high school, a little known fact. Um, and when I went to college, uh, which you can do in Canada if you don't graduate from high school, um, almost never attended any lectures. So, yes, I'm not a big, uh, I'm someone who believes that you should. I loved every minute of school, I will point out, but didn't, didn't see the point in having someone lecture at me. I wanted to, to explore things for my for myself. Yeah, and so you saw, I mean, so you're obviously very successful. And then a friend of yours who followed a, a similar path is now a tenured professor at Harvard. So yeah. yes, he was my great. We had a contest when we were in high school. Um, instead of competing on 
our GPA, we multiplied our average by our the number of absences we had in a given year, and that number was the number we competed we competed on. <laughs> so, as you can see, if you think about it, it greatly benefits. You, there was more upside in taking additional days of playing hooky additional days than there was in adding uh, uh, a percent to your <laughs> uh, your average. Well, yeah, and I've often wondered. I mean, I pretty much always went to class, but you know, on the days where I stayed home, I was programming computer games and writing and reading and drawing. And I feel like those were much better uses of my time in retrospect than yeah. anything yeah. I went no, it in is, school. It's funny how whenever you talk to anyone who has pursued, who do, who's doing what they love um, and has pursued some interesting course in life, in retrospect, they always say that. They always say, you know, that what I learned in school was less relevant in the end than what I learned on my own. I mean, it's funny how often that comes up. It makes me wonder why the mania about school has reached the, the lengths it has now. I mean, it's, it's, we've gotten to this position in our study where we think that everything of importance is learned, is learned within the four walls of an educational institution. Where did that idea come from? That's insanity, right? There's no basis in fact. Um, anyway, <laughs> side point. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, sort of speaking of your of your younger years, I mean, uh, were you a geek? I assume you were sort of a geek and a nerd growing up. I mean, did you just t talk about that aspect of your childhood? I was. I didn't fit the traditional. I was a runner, so I had that bit of jockiness. Um, but I never. My friends did comic books. I never did. We didn't have a television, and so anything kind of remotely electronic, I never did. So I never did. Video games seemed to me. That seemed all very kind of um, uh, very kind of outside of my hopelessly modern from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Right, because this is in rural Canada, right? Yeah, we were way out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we could have had a television. We just never did. We, my parents just never got around to getting one. So um, my I was much more. I mean, I read all of the. I read lots of science fiction. I remember, in fact, one summer reading everything by Harlan Ellison that I could find, just being completely obsessed with him. Um, still am to a certain extent today. Um, but uh, yeah, I was much, I was in the, I was a literary nerd, I suppose. Hmm. Well, how about socially at that age? Were you awkward or unpopular or any, any, anything geeky like that? Well, I was two years ahead of my class in school. So I was, you know, I hadn't reached puberty when everyone else had reached puberty. So there's your answer right there. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, I was always, I mean, there was no possibility of any interaction with the opposite sex when you're two years younger than anybody else as an, as an adolescent. Uh, so I wasn't, I don't know if I was un, unpopular, but I had a, because I was a runner, I had a whole other world that was outside of school. Because I didn't, I ran for a track club, not for my, school. So it was like a, I never sort of had to deal with, uh, and also I went to a very strange school where it was all rural. Most of the kids were farmers, were Mennonite farmers. So it wasn't a school where there was much of a social scene. Everyone was leaving at 3.30 to go and milk the cows, literally. How about, were there any bullies at that school? You know, I hear about bullying now. I had no experience with it. Um, I mean, only, but maybe we didn't classify as bullying back then. But it was such a, so to say, to, to, the town I grew up in was in 
uh, part of southern Ontario which is um, dominated by the Mennonites, and Mennonites are pacifists. You don't get a lot of bullies in an environment. You know, this is a deeply religious, um, mellow. Um, uh, everyone was very, very nice. Plus, it's Canada. You know, <laughs> layer on top of that, Canada. So it was. It was just about the least um, threatening environment you can imagine. So, I mean, do you feel like you really missed out? Because a, a big theme of your book is how much early adversity can end up benefiting your character. Yeah, I didn't have an. I didn't have an adverse. Uh, I had a, I had an idyllic childhood. I would I didn't have my parents weren't wealthy, so I didn't have that. Um, but then you know it, it was never it was even really an issue. Uh, but um, yeah, no, I would be a much. I'm sure I didn't have the kind of. I was fascinated in this book with talking about people who have been through great adversity because it was so different from my own experience. I mean, I had such a benign childhood. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm just reading this biography of Elon Musk, and he had just horrifying bullying as a child, where, I mean, he was beaten so badly that he was in the hospital for a week and had to have surgery to repair his nose and stuff. And I can't help wondering if he became the sort of driven yeah, oh, person no, he did. Yeah, no, I have no doubt. I mean, I in the chapter of my book where I talk about Emil Freireich, um, you know, this kind of towering genius in cancer chemotherapy, who had a childhood like that, an unspeakable childhood, where He's absolutely who he is because of that. I mean, he's very similar personality to someone like Elon Musk. I mean, he's disagreeable in that sense I talk about in the book. He's someone who does not require the approval of others to do what he thinks is correct. And that is a absolutely central trait for any kind of um, entrepreneur or innovator. And it's not what I, I don't, I, you know, I do not have that. I require the approval of others. But hmm. um, these guys, you know, they're, there's a reason, you know, there's, he would, I'm sure if you asked him, he would absolutely draw uh, a, a straight line from his um, difficult childhood to his adult experiences. This is a guy who knows, uh, who was toughened up, right? And very early on learned to disassociate social acceptance from, um, from the pursuit of, of what he found interesting. Mm. And so, I mean, probably, I, I wonder, I mean, it doesn't have to be that severe, right? Would you just say that anyone who's kind of unpopular is maybe getting some of that benefit that they're... Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you know, these are extreme cases, which we choose because they illustrate the point very clearly. But I think that, um, you know, adversity of all kinds has these subtle and largely underestimated um, effects on our, um, on our psyche. You know, I was just reading a paper today about uh, the diff, you know, about mixed class couples, people from very different economic backgrounds who marry. And one of the observations was that people who grew up relatively poor, not poor, poor, but in, in non-wealthy environments have a much better developed ability to deal with uncertainty. You know, they, you learn very early on, you know, if, if you're not absolutely sure whether your family's going to have money tomorrow, you learn how to deal with that, to kind of focus on other things or to ride with it or to put your, to kind of put your, to bracket your anxiety. Um, whereas you never have to learn that skill if you're surrounded by affluence. Now, maybe that doesn't matter. In some cases it doesn't, but sometimes it really does, you know? And maybe when, when we're tested later on or we tackle some incredibly difficult uh, moment as adults, 
um, if we've been through similar experiences as, as children, we're just better prepared. Um, you know, I often think about, if you think about the classic, whenever I talk to lab scientists, for example, I'm always in awe of their perseverance that you try an experiment meticulously that might take you weeks or months and it doesn't work and you do it again and it doesn't work. You might spend three years or four years getting it right. I'm just, I can't imagine where that comes from. But then you think, well, who are these people? They're nerds. You know, they're, they're people who, they weren't in the kind of instant gratification world growing up, right? They were, they were off doing their own thing and learning those kinds of habits of patience and learning they did things as children that did not have any expectation of winning social approval, right? And that turns out to be, if you're a 35-year-old bench scientist, that lesson turns out to be absolutely crucial, right? Um, whereas if you're popular and on the football team, you never learn that. Everything you do brings you social gratification. How on earth do you embark on a task as a 35-year-old, which requires, um, which which involves the absence of that kind of feedback. It's really, it's just, it's not impossible. It's just harder, you know. Yeah, you know, my, my dad is a physicist, and I was talking to him on the phone the other day, and he said that, uh, he said, oh, things actually went right in the lab today. And uh, he's like, this is the most right things have gone in the lab since, uh, since in 20 years, essentially, that, you know, it's been 20 years of frustration to get to where, to, to this breakthrough we just had. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like fascinating. It's like, that's his time horizon, right? Who has a time horizon that long? And think about what you have to go through to have developed that kind of time horizon. Um, it's interesting. Well, so, I mean, do you um, identify with underdogs at all? I mean, do you see yourself as an underdog uh, in the world in any way? I mean, not really. I mean, I, I can pretend I am, but I, it's, I'm really not. Um, you know, I often say that I'm, eh, I'm a middle-class Canadian, you know, middle-class Canadians, just about the sweetest deal of anyone on the <laughs> face of the earth. It's hard to call ourselves underdogs. You know, I have, was raised in a lovely house with, you know, was indulged as a child to do whatever I wished. I, you know, it's, that's, like I said, it's, my fascination is really, with underdogs is really because their lives and experiences are so different from my own. I mean, it seems like I, I, I told my girlfriend about this book and she her response was, doesn't everyone think of themselves as the underdog? And I thought that was interesting. I mean, apparently you don't. But do you think most people kind of see the, the world as against them in some way? I mean, maybe it's a very useful stance, isn't it? Because it incentivizes us to to fight harder and to you know, as a source of motivation. So. I think we all play that game from time to time that we're beleaguered and so we have to fight harder. And that's a, that is an important, to be able to convince yourself of that fact is probably a very, very important tool if you're going to make it in the world. So I would say that many of us do. I don't know. I have met people who do not think of themselves as underdogs. They do exist. And they're, uh, they're kind of awe-inspiring <laughs> and uh, overwhelming sometimes, but uh, they're out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it, it, to some extent it depends on what you're trying to do, right? I mean, like you would think that Elon Musk wouldn't be an underdog because he has ten billion dollars, but if he's take what if what he's trying to do is take on the entire petrochemical industry, then he is kind of an underdog. Yeah, and also remember his frame of reference is formed not 
in the years he in the recent years in which he has become a billionaire, his frame of reference is psychology is formed as a child. Right? So in a in a certain sense when we use these psychological mechanisms and draw on these identities, they're not adult identities. They're they're childhood identities. That's the fascinating thing in all of this research. You know, like all the stuff on that I talk about in my book about the links, how many the bizarre numbers of you know, British prime ministers or American presidents who are orphaned as children, or at least lost at least one parent as kids. That's a childhood experience that continues to shape them well into adulthood, even after they've achieved some of the greatest things you can achieve as a human being. They're still thinking of themselves or drawing on the identities that were formed when they were 12 years old. Right, right. And you also talk in the book about, say, how many entrepreneurs have dyslexia or some other, uh, something like that. Yeah, I find that it's this fascinating fact that's been observed over and again. And it goes to what we're talking about, which is that dyslexia is often a debilitating condition which harms people's prospects in the world. But in some small number of people, it seems to be serve as an occasion for learning a set of skills they wouldn't otherwise have been forced to learn. So if you can't read as a child, you can either be defeated or you can learn how to delegate, get others to read for you, form teams to help you get through school, talk your way out of, you know, bad situations, problem solve, I mean, all kinds of things. And so if you talk to, I've talked to, you know, a dozen or more of these successful entrepreneurs who were dyslexic as children, that's what they they talk about. They talk about how they were forced to improvise as kids. And those techniques of improvisation and compensation are the things that have made them a success as adults. It's just this fascinating thing about how adaptation and compensation are 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 um, development tools that I think we underestimate. Right. And the examples that you give in the book are people who, as you say, they because they had difficulty uh, reading and spelling, they focused on some other. Um, yeah, uh, asset that they had and developed that to a, a very high extent. But it's actually interesting in science fiction. There's a, a very, very successful author named Samuel R. Delaney who's dyslexic, and so even you know you can even become a an incredibly successful writer uh, being dyslexic. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no, no. That's the most fascinating thing of all that someone would have chosen as their uh, field, um, the kind of domain that is most difficult them, or at least initially was difficult. That's, I find that really interesting. You know, it's like, um, but that's because they, they perceive the difficulty as only kind of momentary um, or superficial. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, I mean, I think that the sci- that science fiction authors kind of see ourselves as underdogs because there's a lot of um, hostility to science fiction in academia, or you know, this is changing a little bit, but certainly there, there has been throughout my life. And in a lot of ways, I see it as analogous to the situation you describe in your book with the French Impressionists. Um, I don't know. What do you do? You want to just talk about the French Impressionists, and do you see any sort of uh, analogy there? Yeah. So the Impressionists are uh, people who are painting in a way that the rest of society finds unacceptable, and they're not doing very well. They're ignored and overlooked, and they're broke. And the principal method for being noticed as an artist in France in that era is what's called the Salon, which is a essentially a art show that you, a competitive, you have to apply.
apply to get in, and they only take a handful of people. And if you get in, you're done for life. And if you uh, don't get in, you're, it's very, very hard to get noticed. And they, in order to get in and accepted by, be accepted by the salon, they would have to change the way they paint, paint like everybody else. So they have this classic dilemma. Do I stop doing what I want to do um, and go along with the flow in order to get fame and fortune? Or do I give up on that and um, go off on my own and, you know, choose to give, you know, maximize freedom and give up on um, prestige? And what they choose to do in the end, and fortunately for the history of art, it's the right choice, is they choose to drop out of the salon and to have their own art show. And it's this little tiny art show that they have off by themselves in some, you know, dingy second floor office um, space in Paris. And it's where they make a name for themselves for the first time as impressionists. And um, the crucial lesson there is um, that there is more than one route to... Um, to establishing your name in the world. And that sometimes um, stepping out of the limelight and going your own way for a while and, you know, having the patience. Um, well, a better way of saying it is that, that what the salon, the great difficulty of the salon was that it was this enormous show where if you, even if you were accepted, not only did you have to paint the way they wanted to paint, but there were so many paintings in the show that you could, you would be lost, right? So, what they chose to go for was they said, we want to be special. We want to have, we want people to come to see our art and our art alone. We want to have a space that we can control and have maximum freedom in. And that idea that there are benefits to being small and out of the limelight, um, that paradoxically it can bring you in the long run more attention than if you try and play in the big leagues. That's a really interesting idea. Um, and one that I think should be should provide a lot of solace to people who are pursuing things that are in the moment unpopular. Right, and and I mean, a lot of people would give Star Trek kind of as an example of that, where because it was not taken seriously, they could deal with really serious topics like uh, the civil rights movement, and yeah. nobody you know nobody cared uh, at the network, but uh, the message got through to the audience. Yeah, I think that's that's a good example of that. Yeah, that there's that using the cover of science fiction allowed you all this kind of creative freedom that would have been impossible if you were doing something squarely within the, um, the mainstream. And, uh, and it's funny because there's so much, I mean, there's a lot of hostility to fantasy and science fiction stuff. I mean, just some examples are, uh, or kind of geek stuff in general. I mean, comic books were blamed for juvenile delinquency. Dungeons and Dragons was associated with Satanism, video games and violence, Harry Potter and witchcraft, all this stuff. And you've actually talked about how it can be, there can be a benefits to being part of a, a targeted, excluded community like that. Yeah, I mean, it certainly develops, um, it helps you develop uh, a sense of, of cohesion and group identity, right? I mean, when you are, when the world is against you, um, you quickly learn who your friends are. Um, and you, uh, you see that with, there's a wonderful book written on, um, early last year by Amy Chua, in which she looks at, she's trying to figure out um, what it is that distinguishes the ethnic groups, um, immigrant groups to America that have done really well. And she, one of the things she talks about is um, insecurity, a sense that the, your place in the world is not entirely 
safe and that others are after you. And she says that actually can be in reasonable doses, a healthy thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing her point and simplifying it dramatically, but basically it's what keeps you on your toes, right? You know, when she's talking about looking at her own community, because she's Chinese from the Philippines, but what's striking about a lot of ethnic um, Asian immigrants to America is their, you know, we always talk about their work ethic, particularly when it comes to, uh, in academia and, you know, their, their, um, attachment to education as a way of, of, um, of getting ahead. Um, and she's saying that comes from insecurity, that a feeling that unless we outperform academically everybody else, we're not going to make it. You know, discrimination is such or so many doors are closed to us. So it turns to be a very, that can be a very positive and powerful thing. I think there's versions of that in lots of different places that when, you know, there's a, you can obviously go too far. Um, but in a, at the right dose, there very, you know, paradoxically useful things can come from exclusion and, and, um, and bias. There was one example I wanted to give too. Uh, we had a guy on the show uh, a year or so ago who had worked on Dungeons and Dragons. And he said that a lot of people in the industry lament the fact that uh, the, there's not the satanic panic anymore because it's made Dungeons and Dragons much less cool with teenagers. You know, that there used to be an appeal to, uh, yeah. to being sort of seeming kind of dark and scary and marginalized. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I know. It, yeah, it went mainstream and got ruined. I mean, it's, it's, it happens to everything in the end, right? Is, uh, but it is, I can, I can imagine how much less appealing it is now to a, uh, an, an independent minded 15 year old than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. I also saw you, you give a lecture that was really interesting about how they have, uh, computer software now to analyze screenplays. And we have a lot of writers, you know, who listen to this show. I thought people might be interested to hear you talk about that. Yeah, it was a story I wrote a long time ago for the New Yorker, but it was tongue in cheek. I mean, I wrote a long story about a guy who was trying to develop software to try and tell whether a screenplay would work or not. But in the end, it doesn't really work, um, which is sort of, you know, that was sort of my point, that if you're going to do a standard romantic comedy involving people in their 20s living in apartments adjacent to each other in a major metropolitan city, can the software help you, you know, make sure it's not a flop? Yeah, totally can. But can software help you predict, you know, what the next Seinfeld is going to be or the next Game of Thrones or the next um, The Wire or the next... No, I don't think it can. You know, those things create the mold. And that article, I was trying to get at that, but I don't consider that article a success. I thought, I'd, I don't think I made my point clearly enough. So that happens sometimes. Huh. I mean, in this lecture, I, I thought it sounded like the software had a pretty good record, at least with a certain kind of movie for predicting what its box office was going to be. Yeah, within... I didn't... This, that's why I thought it was a failure. I didn't... I didn't communicate my skepticism sufficiently. Okay. I was. It was a little too subtle. Um, and I didn't want to diss him, because I thought he was well-intentioned. But I wanted to kind of slyly suggests there were limits to what he was doing, but I don't, he didn't really, I didn't really pull it off. But. Huh. I mean, because what I thought was interesting about that was just the presumption that you could predict the box office just based on the script, which 
implies that everything outside the script is not exactly. sort of incidental. That idea is really interesting and I think valuable. So to the extent that they, if they proved anything, it is that the script is a much more important predictor of economic success than everything else. And that alone is an insight worthy, makes it the whole process worthwhile. If that's what they proved, they've done a huge, you know, mitzvah for the industry. Um, and that's a novel idea because everyone would have assumed actors matter way more and directors matter way more, et cetera. But that, those guys, I think, I think to my satisfaction, made the argument, pretty good argument that scripts matter front and center. Yeah, I mean, as a writer, I like that idea. So they should just stop paying Tom Cruise $40 million and just pay the screenwriters that instead. Exactly, exactly. Yes, very self-serving. <laughs> I like that argument. <laughs> um, I also saw you give a lecture at a, a conference where you guys were talking about Civilization 3.0. I was just wondering if, if you have any thoughts about kind of futurism-related stuff, Civilization 3.0, anything that might be of interest to, to Wired listeners? I mean, my you know my basic position on the future is that everyone who thinks they know how to predict it is wrong. So I'm very very shy about rendering any. Um, but um, I do think I'm the thing that interests me most is is um, just as a kind of uh, rubric for making sense of the future. I think we need to do a better job of dividing up problems into categories that I feel like categories that have a clear technological solution um, are not should not be considered problems. They're simply questions that have not yet been answered. But problems that have a human dimension are problems, real problems, and we should spend our time on them. So to clarify, I've never, I don't think global warming, I don't call it a problem. Global warming is, it's a, it is a technical problem that will be solved. It's everything within, it, it's, to the extent that global warming represents, um, is simply a symptom of the, um, non-optimality of our power source, energy sources. We're going to solve it. We're solving it right now. We're going to wake up 10 years from now and like, we won't be using fossil fuels. I have infinite, um, belief in the ingenuity of human beings to solve technical problems. What I don't have an infinite belief in is our ability to solve human problems. So I'm much more concerned about the fact that there are people in Ferguson and Baltimore who have given up on their police. That worries me. There's no technological fix to that. That's about human beings learning how to get along better and devise better ways of governing each other and winning each other's trust. That's hard. I'd like to spend way more time on that and stop fretting about, you know, whether we're going to have gasoline in our engines. We won't. Really smart people like Elon Musk, who we've just been talking about, he and a thousand other smart people, they've handled it. We should just get out of their way. You know, don't put up impediments in their path. Let them do their thing and focus on the stuff that requires real time and attention, which is the stuff that involves human beings relating to other human beings. Well, it's interesting because you'll, you'll watch a movie like RoboCop where there's a robot goes around shooting people, but I've never seen a science fiction movie where there was a robot who went around handing out Thanksgiving turkeys, and it seems like maybe that's what what we should have. Yeah, like you can you can solve, you know, the uh, 
drone warfare is a good example of this. You can get really, really good at killing who you want to kill with a drone very, very cleanly and efficiently and surgically. But then you still are left with the human problem of how do people uh, affected by that kind of warfare feel about it? And how do you repair the cost, the social cost of that kind of warfare or any kind of warfare, but that kind of warfare in specifically? You know, we had this weird phenomenon in, in Northwest Pakistan where um, the more, the better we got at killing people with drones, killing kind of Taliban leaders and such with drones, the more um, terrorist strikes there were against uh, U.S operations in that region. In other words, the better we got at performing the technical act of war, the angrier we made them. Right. Well, I mean, for people who haven't read the book, I, I just want to explain that you have this example in there of this police chief who went around delivering Thanksgiving turkeys to all the uh, juvenile yeah. delinquents, and that brought crime down to a staggering degree. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a story about a woman, um, I mean, Joanne Yaffe, who was a uh, was with the housing police, and she was trying to deal with what is the one of the biggest sources of crime in New York City is juvenile crime associated with housing projects, right? That's like a huge piece of the puzzle. We've had, NYPD had struggled for years with that particular problem. So she comes in, takes over the housing police, and departs dramatically from what the script and decides that what she really has to do is establish the legitimacy of the police in those neighborhoods. She said, decides, realizes the problem is people aren't listening to what the cops say and the cops aren't acting as a deterrent the way they want to be because no one likes the cops. They have no respect for them. They think of the cops as making their lives more difficult. And she says, until she has won the respect and trust of the neighborhood, she's not going to get anywhere. She basically identifies the kids who are real troublemakers and systematically sets out to make friends with their families. Maybe not even make friends in the beginning, to win the respect and trust of those families. And I talk about this breakthrough moment when one Thanksgiving she basically delivers a turkey to the home of every family of a juvenile delinquent in this one really, really bad housing project in Brooklyn. And that's the moment where she breaks through with them. And they finally, the parents, grandparents, whoever, family members, come over to her side and say, we will help you get our kid um, on the straight and narrow. And she's under her watch. Crime rates in these neighborhoods have, for the first time, started to fall. And not just fall by a little, fall by a lot. Um, and that, I think that's a lovely lesson in how we need to kind of rethink some of our strategies about crime fighting. And particularly, you know, in the wake of what's been going on in this country. So these are really important lessons. Do you, are, are you optimistic that those lessons are being learned or uh, spread out from that one example? Well, uh, you know, eventually will we learn it? I think so. But I'm always, what what is frustrating is how long it takes. You know, here you have the best and the biggest police force in the country, the NYPD which has pursued a strategy with extraordinary success, going back five years now, you would expect every urban police force in the country to be lining up right now in Brooklyn, learning how it's done. And that's clearly not happening. So there's a problem in spreading these kinds of insights. Um, 
it doesn't happen as quickly as we as we would have thought. Well, I think you and this podcast were doing our part here. Yes, we are. <laughs> Uh, okay, there's one thing I, I wanted to. I, I thought maybe one thing that may, might make you feel like an underdog is that you've said that people will accuse you of taking other people's ideas and passing them off as your own, no matter how strenuously you go to lengths to make to, to cite all your sources and, yeah. uh, and 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 give credit where credit is due. Is there? Does that make you feel like an underdog that you just can't get that through to people? Yeah, I got it. I mean, I occasionally feel beleaguered. But um, but no, I don't. I don't take it that personally. I mean, I think it's part of a larger thing about when you participate in the world of ideas. What's your mindset? My idea is, my notion has always been: if you put an idea out in the world, you've put it out in the world. And so, I am when I come across an idea of mine that someone else has taken and used and done whatever they want to do with it. I my position is fantastic. If they cite me, fantastic. If they don't, whatever. It's not the end of the world. That's the reason reason I write books is I want full of ideas. I want those ideas to be used. Um so I don't I'm not a I want some somebody once flat out plagiarized me years ago and I wrote an article in the New Yorker about how I was initially upset about it and then I looked at what she did and it was a playwright and she'd used all the stuff material from one of my articles in this really cool way. I was like, you know what? God bless her. That's what, you know, it's like she took something I did and put it to a, a use I would never have put it to. Who cares about crossing every T and dotting every I? We've gotten so, like, um, people are so insecure and neurotic about their own quote-unquote material. It's not your material. It's like you got it from a thousand places person who uses it is going to take it in a thousand different directions. Everyone should just chill out, you know? I I thought that Jonah Lair was, made mistakes and was sloppy and all that, but the real question is, did you read his books and learn something from it? Right? If you did, who cares whether, you know, the Dylan quote was, had that precise wording or had a slightly different wording? Like, I don't know. I just can't get... I have no, I don't have the strength and patience for these kind of intramural arguments that writers have about whether this precise use of words match this precise use of words. Like, you know, I'd much, I'd, I'd just much rather I'd answer the question of whether something is being learned or something interesting is happening, you know, or something cool has been done. Um, but that's a minority position, I guess. I don't know if you know the Jonathan Lethem essay where he he took yeah, he, he made an, yeah how great is that yeah that was that was a good kind of stick in the eye to the fundamentalists to the kind of plagiarism fundamentalists yeah so so just to explain for people who may not know he, oh, he, yeah. he it's an essay where he constructed I think maybe the entire if I remember correctly almost the entire essay yeah yeah he constructed from sentences it's an essay about plagiarism making an argument about how we get, you know, we misunderstand it and get too worked up about it. And everything in the essay is sentences taken from other people's work. And his point being that he created something that is entirely new and original, but constructed from things taken from other people's work. So, you know, 
In other words, to take someone's words is not to commit an act of theft. The question is, what are you doing with them? If you take someone's words to create something new, as Jonathan Mason did, that was his meta point, then plagiarism is a meaningless, trivial thing that, we, you know, makes no sense to get too worked up about it. All right. So unfortunately, we're all out of time. Uh, do you have any just final comments you want to make? Any other projects you're working on that you want people to know about? At the moment, I'm, I'm writing a, um, a screenplay for a television show that I, the idea of which I sold to HBO, but, you know, it's in the earliest possible stages and I'm almost certain nothing will come of it, but that's what's been, and been occupying me the last couple of months, um, which I found really fun. Uh, my first foray into fiction. But, um, but then I'm, I'd like to write another book after this. So that's what I'm thinking about long term. Okay, and I assume there's nothing you can say about that HBO show. Oh, it's a medical thriller. It's just about a, two scientists in a biotech firm um, who have a falling out and the consequences of their disagreement. Huh. Is it inspired by any research you did or anything like that? No, just a random idea I had. And um, I just thought it'd be interesting to... Um, I was. I like the idea of telling a story about the world of science and the drug world through the prism of people's relationships. You know, you work together with someone in a lab for seven years. The relationship is really crucial in how you understand what you're doing in each other. So that's the kind of premise of the show. Hmm. And does it have a name? It's called Druid Hills, after the neighborhood in Atlanta where Emory University and the CDC and all those places are. All right, cool. Well, I will definitely keep an eye out for that. I hope that they, uh, they end up making it. Yes, I hope so, too. And I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Malcolm Gladwell and talking about his book, David and Goliath. So, Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Malcolm Gladwell for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including DiffBeat42 and Voniak. Voniak writes, If you are a fan of the science fiction and fantasy genres, you should not be missing this podcast. The guests for the interviews are top-notch, everyone from George R. R. Martin to Paul Krugman, and the host, David Barr-Kirtley, always does his homework and asks thoughtful and interesting questions. The panel discussions are usually just the right mix of fun and informative. These geeks know their stuff, and I have learned so much about new authors, subgenres I was not familiar with, and book titles I had never been exposed to, that I literally have a small notebook full of works I want to read and watch. The show is great, and in truth, it keeps getting better. So, big thanks again to Voniak for that great review. And a special thank you as well to Leon Fournier for signing up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So, if you enjoy hearing the show every week and want it to continue, please sign up as a patron over at patreon.com geeks. You can also make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.